0: Uh, we continue in our study in the book of Psalms, but we're actually going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to put them up on the screen there so you can follow along today. If you don't uh, have a Bible at all, we'd love to outfit you with one, and that can be found in um, the, uh, the Commons, which is a bookstore in the center of our campus, and just go in there and say, I'd like one of the free Bibles, and they'll get one for you. So you can take it home and read it and bring it back with you next Sunday. Um, what I really have loved about this psalm series is how clearly I think the Bible articulates and mirrors the human experience. So in the psalms, we're, we're seeing the songwriter lament uh, and be discouraged, just like you and I lament and have times of discouragement. Um, they, they talk about times when it feels like God is not there, God is not listening. You and I have those moments as well. And they also have times where, it just feels like the presence of God is just all over them, that he's right there, and their worship, and their adoration, and their praise is so vibrant and, and, and kind of high definition. And wh- what I love about the Psalms is, is seeing how these singer-songwriters, the, the psalmist kind of write these songs out of their background. You Kind of know the story that the song comes from. I I, I share an office uh, here with Jed, and Jed's one of our worship leaders, and Jed uh, helps me to serve in 7:10 as well. And uh, Jed, I think, is a phenomenal songwriter. In fact, we're going to sing uh, a song that him and one of our friends, Jeff, wrote together later in the service. But um, I love just kind of hearing uh, what Jed is wrestling with with God, and the things that God is showing him, and the things that he's learning about God, and he's kind of writing through and writing those out, and then to kind of be uh, Around when the, the genesis of those stories and those songs and then for us to come together and sing them, it, it just kind of brings me closer um, to the song. And I, and, and I think that's what happens when you start to understand the life of a songwriter. It gives us a, a better picture and a better understanding of the song and allows us to kind of enter the heart and the mind of the songwriter. And that's what we're going to do here uh, when we get into 1 Samuel chapter 24, just kind of a ramp up to chapter 24. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we we find David, who is this... Young teenage shepherd boy, kind of singer songwriter guy, and he's anointed as king. Uh, and in that very same chapter, the, the spirit of God leaves Saul, and Saul is tormented. And so he, in essence, kind of hires David to come into his court and play some music to get him to chill out a little bit. And First Samuel chapter 17, uh, there's this incredible battle between young David and the Philistine giant Goliath. You should read your Bible. There's amazing things in there. Uh, and and David actually conquers Goliath and becomes this national hero. And then in chapter 18, uh, Saul becomes insanely jealous, so much so that in chapter 19, he actually chucks a spear at David. That's how you know somebody doesn't like you when they throw a spear at you. Uh, and then David, with the help of his best friend Jonathan, begins to, to flee and is is on the run. And it's very important the way that the story kind of unfolds because at no time... Do you see David attempt to usurp the throne from Saul? He is anointed, he is the rightful king, um, but yet he continues to, uh, in many ways, show respect for Saul and ultimately show respect for God and God's, God's plan. And then um, David lands in chapter 22 at this cave, the place called Adullam, and I'll just read that to you briefly. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, sounds like 710, gathered to him, I love you, I love you all, Uh, and David became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So this is David's group, all the people who are in debt, distress, and bitter. Uh, He's got about 400 of them, that's David's David's army. He continues to run until he gets to chapter 24. and he is there, and we'll read that now together. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. It's exactly like it sounds. Uh, now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall, be, as it shall seem good to you. So David's men say, uh, this is the moment we've waited for. Clearly, God has provided this. We've been running like crazy from Saul. Here is Saul in an extremely vulnerable situation, now is the moment. So what David does, he arises and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him. He's convicted immediately uh, and and because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he, Saul, is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, and he said, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Now, look at David's kind of posture here, not just physically, but also in, in his heart and in his mind. David's been on the run from this man, Saul, who tried to kill him. Um, but yet it is David who, after he has an opportunity to exact vengeance and kind of take matters in his own hand, goes outside, and he's the one who's actually bowed down to his, his enemy, paying respect there in verse 9. And David said to Saul... Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, For he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? David says, in other words, why bring all these national resources, 3,000 men, to come after me? Who am I? Why why would you spend this much energy? Why why would you go through so much to pursue me? Who, Who am I? Verse 15 May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. and um, just ask God to help us with the rest of our time together. Father God, we love you. and God, we just thank you for, um, God, your provision, your, your faithfulness. God, the way that you um, show up in, in places like Alaska, and God, the way that you show up in places like here today and in our hearts and our lives. And God, I'm asking once again, God, that you would just show up that you would come in power, God, that you would bring um, by your spirit clarity, God, that you would you would move us, God, that we would not just be a people who hear the word and do nothing with it, but God, that um, we would be transformed, that our affections for you would be stirred up. God, I, I thank you um, that this moment does not rest in my power or ability, um, but by your power and by your strength. And so, God, I pray for those things. Um, Jesus, I love you, and I want nothing more than for you and for you alone to be lifted up in this time. And so, God, I just pray that that would happen by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can turn to Psalm chapter 57. Somewhere, scholars think, between um, chapter 22 and chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, that's where Psalm 57 is written most likely at this moment in Psalm twenty or in 1 Samuel chapter 24 when David's in the cave. Um there with, with Saul, um, it's also set to the tune of Do Not Destroy. So if you're a heavy metal guy, then that's helpful for you. Um, there's four things that we're going to see out of this psalm, four principles that we're going to learn that we, uh, that we get from Psalm chapter 57. Let me start in verse 1. Uh, David says this, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The first thing that we see um, from verse 1 in Psalm chapter 57 is that God's presence is the place of my protection. God's presence is the place of my protection. Now geographically, David is hiding in a cave, but in verse 1, he says in his heart, he takes refuge in God, in the shadow of the wings of God. He hid in the presence or in the reality or in the realness of who God is. And what we can learn from this is that when disaster is happening in your life, that you hide yourself in the presence of God. You hide yourself. You take refuge in the reality of who God is and the realness of who God is. Now, now we all hide. In fact, some of you, you come to church Hiding it's something that all of us do. My, my kids, uh, they love to hide. They love to play hide and seek. They're terrible at it because they all hide together and they all giggle wherever they are and their little feet always stick out. So, you know, they're not very good at it, but they love to hide when we go to the store. You know, this, this must be just a kid thing because I did it. They love to dive into the clothing racks and hide, right? Uh, in fact, when I was a kid, um, my mom had us. And it was me, and I have three younger sisters, so we were all kind of shopping at Kmart. I don't know if Kmart is still with us anymore, but but we were at Kmart, and Kmart had like the mother of all clothing racks. They were these big, huge, circle things, and I loved going in there. And so I dove in there, and uh, my mom's walking around with my sisters, and they're like, "Paul, Paul, where are you, Paul?" And I, of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up. And so then you hear, you know, the blue light special on the thing, followed by. Paul. Your mom is up here waiting for you. Wake up. Um, and so I, you know, still wasn't coming out. And then there was silence and no one was looking for Paul anymore uh, and because my mom had left me there at Kmart, which is kind of traumatizing to be left at Kmart. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, it, it worked because uh, that was the last time I ever you know, ran away from my mom in the store. Um, they probably, I don't think they had CPS back when I was a kid, so. Um, it was a very effective parenting technique, not to be repeated. But, um, but to kids, you know, hiding is not a big deal because you know that somebody who loves you is going to come find you. When you're, when you're hiding and you're hiding with someone who loves you, hiding is, is fun, but hiding becomes terrifying when you're all alone. Hiding is terrifying when you feel like you're never gonna get out or nobody is ever gonna find you. I I think one of the reasons that God kept and preserved David is because David really trusted in and he really longed for the presence of God. He 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 wanted to be near God. And and we see David here, even though he's been anointed, it it looks like, you know, he's, he's going to get to be king. But it, but it looks like he's going to be killed before he gets that opportunity. But he says, Lord, I'm hidden in you. And I, and I know that outside of you and your authority, nobody can touch me. And so what we need to learn, like David here, is to desire the presence of God in the darkest times of our lives. David desired the presence of God, the realness of God in his life. The first thing we see there is that God's presence is the place of my protection. The second thing we see is that God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. God's purpose is the promise of my deliverance. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So the purposes of God so often in our life can seem vague. They seem obscure. They seem distant. They seem impossible for us to get our arms around Sometimes there's things that happen in our lives that don't seem to really line up with what we think God intends. Like somehow there was a glitch in God's sovereignty. Like, God, this happened and this, there's no way this is what you really meant to happen in my life. There's no way that this is really how it was supposed to go down. Um, We've got David here. He, he's running from this homicidal king. David has 400 men uh, and Saul has thousands. But yet in verse 2, David writes, it's you, God, who fulfills your purpose for me. In the King James Version, it says he performs all things for me. In the Amplified, it says who performs on my behalf and rewards me. What David is teaching us is that God fulfills his purpose in the life of his children. And it's not always difficult for us to mentally ascend to that, to kind of remember that. But it can be very difficult for us to believe that. Because maybe in your life you feel like God's timing is way off. You feel like if God was going to do the thing that he was going to do, he would have already done it by now. But, but, but David reminds us that God is the God who fulfills his purpose even for you. There's a Hebrew word there, gamar. It means to bring something to an end or complete it. It's the same idea of God speaking to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful To complete it, if God started something in your life, He'll finish it. God doesn't bring you this far just to leave you. But here's the key here's the key to this principle. David says that God will finish His purpose, not my purpose. And that's why so many of us get lost in this when we try to follow Jesus because we don't make the distinction between His purpose or His desire for our lives and our desire for our lives. You see, at this point, David is still not sure how this is all going to end. God told him that he would be king, but he didn't tell him how he's going to make it out of the cave. And we see that David has an opportunity here to kind of fast forward this process and to take matters into his own hands, but he doesn't do it because he was determined to do God's thing and to do it God's way. If you want God's will for your life, you have to do it God's way. If you want God's best for your life, you have to trust God's timing in your life. It's not easy. I know. It's not popular. It, it doesn't make any sense. But his purpose is the promise or assurance of, of your deliverance. You see, all through the scriptures, when God promises to take his people somewhere, whether it's to the promised land or across a stormy sea on a, on a boat, God always sees to it. In the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, his name is Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide or the Lord sees to it. It comes out of this moment where he's with Abraham and he instructs Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And, and, and right before it's about to go down, God provides a ram as a sacrifice. And Abraham teaches his son and teaches generations and teaches us today that his, the Lord's name is Jehovah-Jireh. He will provide. He will see to it. For so many of you in this room, you feel as though God has given you a desire for something, and it's a desire for something good, but he hasn't seemed to provide a way for that to happen, and you're tempted to cut the corner on the robe. You have a desire for relationship. You have a desire to date or a desire to be married. That's a God-given desire, that desire for relationship. That's a thumbprint of God on your life. And you're at a place right now where, where you're contemplating compromise, moral, ethical, biblical compromise, just so you can kind of get this thing going because otherwise it's not going to happen. It, it could be that, that some of you, uh, you've, you've been hurt uh, and you desire to get even with someone because they've wronged you or because they've hurt you. Uh, that desire for justice, that, that, that's a God-given desire, but you cut off Saul's robe when you take matters into your own hands. God not only knows what you need, but he knows when you need it. Um, there there was a man who came into my office once for, for, for counseling. It was like a Thursday afternoon. He just kind of came in. And I always feel bad for people who end up in my office for counseling because you've like made it to the end of the bench for sure if you're with me. Um, and he just came in just really broken and and said, you know, I have compromised in my professional life, in my business. I have, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, and it's just wrecking me. And, and so kind of after hearing his story, you know, I said, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta make it right. We gotta fix it. We gotta be honest. We gotta tell people we are gonna might have to repay, you know, we're gonna have to work through this. And he, he just wept and wept and he said, I cannot do that because I have built a, I've built a life on these lies. I, 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 I've, I've built a, a standard of living that requires that I make this amount of much money that requires that I do this. And, and my, my wife has expectations on me. My kids have expectations. My co-workers have expectations. My neighbors have expectations. I have a reputation that I've built. And I cannot, I can't go back. I can't undo these things. And he left a broken, broken man. Now, advancing in your career... I think that's a great thing, but if you cut Saul's robe, you will end up miserable, broken, trapped. Saul's there, relieving himself, David cuts his robe, and and for so many of us, that's what sin looks like, isn't it? There's a a God-given desire, and we want to fulfill it, but we Try to fulfill it in a way that is dishonoring God, meaning we want to take this God-given desire, but we try to fulfill it in a way that's outside of his statutes, outside of his prescribed way for living. If you try to do God's will your way, it will never work. And not only does this church apply on an individual level for me and for you, but it applies on a corporate level as well. We are a church here that preaches the Bible. We hang our hat on that. We have a legacy of that. I hope that that goes far into our future. I love that about us. But I believe what God wants us to be is not just a church that preaches the Bible, but a church that believes the Bible as well. Meaning it actually shows up in our lives. Today, this afternoon, football is going to be on TV. Praise the Lord. I know it doesn't count, but it's football, right? Which means in a few weeks, and a month, that uh, some of you who are Cardinals fans and a few disillusioned Seahawks fans, you're gonna show up in your jerseys, which I don't understand. I think it's weird, but you, I get it, right? You believe in your team. You have a love for your team. There's a hope for your team, right? You rally behind it. That's the idea of what we are to be. Not just proclaiming but demonstrating. It shows up. We're known for it. We live like we truly desire the will of God to be done. We truly desire that his kingdom, not our own kingdom, would come in power in our world, in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in our lives. Just because we might get it right in the confines of these walls does not mean that we are getting it right out there. So so often, I think because of what, what God has given me to do with my life, I, I, I think, God, what do you really think about us? God, what do you really think about this? Because a lot of times we break our arm patting ourselves on the back with what we think about us, but that's not the question that matters. And I look at what we do and what we say in here, and I just wonder, God, what do you think about that? Are you thinking, you know what, that's great, but here's something you need to clue in on. There are people a mile from here. You have people who live next door to you. You have people you go to school with. You have people you go to work with who have no idea who I am. You spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and you get all fired up in those walls. But when you leave, it's not showing up. We can't just be a people who proclaim the gospel and don't demonstrate the gospel If you want to see the deliverance of God, if you want to experience the presence or the realness of God, you have to submit yourself to the purpose of God in every aspect of your life. A lot of times what happens is we go and we do things our own way, we get into trouble, it becomes this complete train wreck, and then we say, God, help me out. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, he delivers us. And he does cover us, and you're forgiven in the finished work of Christ Jesus. But if you want to experience and continually walk in the freedom that Jesus brings, that God brings, you have to submit to his purpose. The third thing we see is that God's performance is the assurance of my salvation. It's God's performance that is the assurance of my salvation. Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. If it was up to us, to merit or to earn our salvation or to earn a role in God's purpose, if we had to plead our own righteousness or our own rightness, if we didn't have the sinless, perfect life of Christ or the cross where he was sacrificed for our our sins, then we shouldn't even bother with church or singing or preaching or, or any of this because I don't know about you, but for me, it was over a long time ago. I I sinned against him years ago. I sinned against him today. I continue to sin against him. And I don't use mercy and grace as a way to justify my sin, but I thank God that I have an advocate and a righteousness that is not my own. What this teaches us is that the award for best savior goes to Jesus, not us. He's from heaven. He's from another reality that we did not create or contribute to. Around here, we use this phrase a lot, that you should preach this gospel or preach this good news to yourself. That God's performance is the assurance of my salvation. The last thing that we see out of this psalm is that God's greatness is the basis of my confidence. It's God's greatness that is the basis of my confidence. Look at verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. In this room, and in this room for the other two services, there are very difficult things happening. There's very difficult circumstances. There's, There's illness. There's financial trouble. There's marital trouble every week there are prayer requests that are submitted by you to us and every week the staff reads over them we pray for them there's a team of volunteers that prays for them they probably reach out to you so I know there are very difficult things happening in this room this morning ravenous beasts fiery beasts you feel like your souls in the midst of lions. David writes that because scholars think that where he was in the cave, uh, deeper in the cave, was, that, was a den of lions. And outside the cave was Saul. And so you got David right there in the middle. David says, I can't go any further deeper into the cave. That's certain death. And I can't leave the cave. Also death. I'm stuck. I've got nowhere to move. I've got no answers. There's nothing I can do. Did I just describe anybody's situation in here? David says I'm right in the middle of it. But look what he writes in verse 5. Be exalted. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I'm stuck. I've got nowhere to go. I, I I can't go to one more doctor appointment. I don't have any more job interviews. She won't answer my my phone calls or my texts. I got nowhere to go. But God, let Your glory, let Your fame, be over everything. And what changes is David's perspective. His perspective changes from what's around him to who is above him. He looks at the circumstances. He's like, "This is not secure." But God, who is the lifter of my head, the psalmist describes him as. He causes us to see him. Now, look, a, a cave full of lions doesn't really seem like the path to becoming king, unless your name is Simba. But, but David, in the, in the middle of this, he just knows, like, this is how God works. And it is. All through the scriptures, he takes people on some pretty strange paths, doesn't he? Have you ever been riding with someone, and they know the area well, and you have no idea where you're at, and you're sitting shotgun, and they're just kind of driving, they're taking shortcuts, and they're going around different corners, and you're like, we are lost. There is no way, like, we should have been there by now, like, there's no way they know where they're they're, they're going. My my wife is from a little um, small town in North Georgia called Jasper, Georgia, and in fact, it's so small, they just kind of refer to the area as, as Pickens County, which is as classy as it sounds, and... Uh, and I, every time, you know, I give her a hard time about Pickens, I'm always quick to remind her that at one point she was crowned Miss Pickens County. So, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so I can hate on it. She can't. Um, so, uh, when I used to go visit her uh, in this town you know we 'd be driving around we 're kind of on our way to someplace and and there are all these twisty mountain roads and all these back roads and all this kind of stuff, and the whole time i 'm thinking she has no idea where she 's going, but I want to marry this woman, so I know i 'm not supposed to talk about the way women drive, so I just got to bite my lip and just kind of suck it up and then next thing I know we're, we would show up we 'd be there at the twisty curl or wherever we were going you know and I just thought this is amazing you 're you're better than I thought. Um, but I think traveling with God is like that a lot. Like, like you're, you're there and, and you say, okay, God, you know, you're, you're taking me wherever you're going to take me. And I trust you, but man, this just doesn't look right. This doesn't feel familiar. I, 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 it feels like it's taken too long. It feels like we're lost. At one point we're off road. I just, God, I just, don't, I just don't get it and then you arrive at the place that God wanted you to be the whole time in his timing. And this is what God does. God takes unlikely people on an unlikely path or an unlikely journey so that they can be used by him in an unbelievable way. Unlikely people on an unlikely path so that they might be used by God in an unbelievable way. I mean, how did the savior of the world show up to us in this backwater hillbilly town nobody wanted to be from, born to a construction worker, a pregnant teenager? He works carpentry. Everywhere he goes, he's doubted, he's questioned, he's minimized. When he finally gets the recognition as a king, a few days later, he's stripped naked and beaten bloody and spit on and humiliated and tortured for you and for me. But now we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Trust in God's timing. Trust in God's plan. Trust in God's purpose. Trust in God's deliverance. I love how David ends the song, verse seven. He says, this my heart is steadfast, O God, My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, which means wake up my whole being, all of me. Wake up to this reality. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. In other words, there is no boundary on your love. And there's no limit to your faithfulness. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David urges himself to praise and to look forward by bringing the testimony of God's goodness beyond his present circumstances. I love what Jeremy did for us last week uh, when, he, when he was teaching on Psalm 103. He said we need to remember. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember what God has done on our behalf. Remember who he is. Remember what he's capable of. Uh, to, to recall. Recall the moments of God's provision. Recall the moments of God's mercy and love and grace. Re- recount. Recount the blessings of God. I love the idea of the blessing jar, right? Pulling out these things. Every little thing that God does. Recount those things. A lot of times um, what I'll do on a Sunday, this is kind of part of what I do, is just kind of look at what it is that we do here uh, and, and think about it. Like, okay, are we doing it the best way or are we doing things that are kind of weird, or are we doing things that might be uh, troublesome, or like another burden for somebody who's relatively new, or not familiar with us, you know, like, I just try, try to kind of look at what we do with fresh eyes, and so on a Sunday, I'll come in here, and um, a lot of times, I'm thinking, man, you know, if I was new, what would that be like, and singing for me is kind of one of those things, I love singing, I love what we do in our time of praise, but there's sometimes I'm just thinking, this is a little bit odd, but do you know why we sing? It's, it's not just because we, we need to fill the time. Um, we sing for the same reasons that David sings here at the end of this psalm. We sing as a reminder of who God is and what he has done and what he has promised. If you pay attention to the lyrics of the songs that we sing, they're carefully chosen, by the way. They're a reminder of who God is, what he's done, what he's promised. We also sing as a prayer request of what we want to see in our lives and what we want to see happen in our world. Uh, The very first song we sang this this morning, this song about a white flag. And the reason that we sing that song is we are um, proclaiming and we are agreeing with the fact that we need to surrender our lives. And that we have spent a whole week of not surrendering. We haven't spent a week of lifting high the cross. We have spent a week of lifting high ourselves. And making much of ourselves. And so we start our time together. Our time of corporate praise and worship. With a confession that God we need to surrender. We need to surrender our lives. It's our joy to surrender our lives. We sing as a prayer request of what we want to see in our lives. And what we want to see happen in our world. And lastly we sing as a testimony of truth to those who are without hope. We sing as a testimony of truth to those who are without hope. I know, like I said, in the room there are difficult things, but for you to sing out loud these praises to God, these songs of hope, these songs of freedom, it's good for you. It's also for good for those who are around you. When they who are here without hope hear you sing loud these songs of hope, you have no idea what the Spirit of God is going to do through that proclamation of that truth how God will apply that to the hearts of people around you, how encouraging that is, how it just might be what the person next to you needed to hear. Once again, the truth of who God is and what he has done, what he's capable of, this God of immeasurable more, this God who brings freedom, this God who brings deliverance, for them to just hear once again those lyrics, those, those words, that truth. You have no idea what God would do through that. And that's what we're going to do right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, again, I thank you just for uh, the Psalms and and God, um, how they so clearly and so closely mirror what we so often feel and experience in our own hearts and lives. God, I thank you for the brutal honesty of the scriptures. God, I thank you for um, the spirit that inspired these writers. Um, God, moves today in our midst And God, even now, is revealing things to us and teaching us and encouraging us and building us up. Um, God, I just thank you so much for your presence. God, I do pray for those who feel much like David did in that cave, where if I make a move one way. It's gonna be tragic, but if I go the other way, it will be equally as tragic. And God, I just pray that today they would sense, feel, experience a freedom and a deliverance that comes from you, God. Your word, you tell us there's a peace that goes beyond understanding. And so God, I pray for just a spirit of peace to move in this room. God, I pray that people would, like David, know that they can be honest with you, that you are a God whose arm is not too short to save, that you are a God who is intimately acquainted with us, who is close to us, who cares, that you're a father who gives good gifts. God, I just pray that the the truth of who you are, God, I, I, like David, also pray for your presence. God, just for you to be so real to us. God, I thank you for this time of communion that you let us have. God, just another reminder of what you have done to bring us freedom and hope. It's in your name we pray, amen.